Hey everybody, welcome to Outspoken, episode 67. I am your host, Justin White, and uh, I'm excited this week because it's rare that I have the opportunity to uh, have a show and promote something that hasn't yet happened. Usually I'm trying to draw people's attention to my guest's work after the fact. But this week, my guest Henry Rosenthal uh, is the producer of a short documentary that's playing this coming Thursday, November 14th, at the Victoria Theater in San Francisco's Mission District. Don't miss it. Starts at 7 p.m. In addition to this film, San Francisco's first and only rock and roll movie, Crime 1978, directed by John Bastian, B-A-S-T-I-A-N, and that's John with no H, mind you. There will also be a screening of Ziggy Stardust, and there will be a costume contest and live performances and prizes and surprises and merchandises and all kinds of cool stuff. So I hope you can make it. I'm going to be there. Henry's going to be there. A bunch of other people are going to be there. Um, the event is called Cops versus Aliens, so uh, it'll be announced again later in the show. And here we go. Uh, I'm going to jump on this Jay Church and uh, catch up with Henry, and we'll talk about uh, a bunch of stuff that he's done. So, hi, Henry. How are you? I'm good. Good. Thank you for coming. Happy to be here. Thanks. Um, I wanted to, well, I think it might make sense to to say how we met, just because it's kind of a funny roundabout way. (laughs) I don't know that I would have met you otherwise. It's true. Our paths crossed in a strange place. Right. At the Todd Todd Berry crowd work show. Exactly. Part of, uh, what was that, Sketchfest last year? Yep. And it was in the Swedish American... uh, Swedish American Hall. Yes. The newly refurbished. Yeah, really nice. I mm-hmm. like I like that venue. For, yeah, it's beautiful. It's good for comedy. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but you were actually singled out as one of the crowd to be worked on. Right? I was the the minute I took my seat. I just and I and I saw the format of the evening where uh, he come takes the stage with no pre- no prepared material and uh, just starts interacting with the audience and takes it from there. I just knew I was going to get it. Really? You had the sense right I just away? had the sense just because, I, just because I stuck out from the room so much, uh, the demographic in the room. Yeah. Well, you were also on the aisle, if I remember correctly. That's true. I was on the aisle, but I was about four rows back. I thought, it's anybody's game. But, right. Uh, but no, he got to me eventually. You were, if I remember, you were toward the end. Like he had... He had almost wrapped it up that's right you were one or you know second to the second to last <laughs> yeah or i could i could tell he was he had his eye he was looking at me out of the corner of his eye i could feel it coming i think he was tired of talking to tech bros yeah and, that and, was you know, everybody in the front row worked in tech they and were that, all programmers that got old yeah it was fun i mean he somehow made it hilarious anyway he did but none of them had much to offer no he, he just had to play off of their it was a very weird thing to yeah. see 
but uh, he's a master. And he is. The, extremely skillful and, and a lot of laughs. He was amazing. Mm-hmm. So, when, so once he did call on you, were you flipping out or were you just... Oh, no. No, no, no. You got to go for it. I'm like, I know, what, I know how this goes, right. so I'll do my best. Cool. To, well... Avoid uh, stepping in it. Right. And I don't think you did. Did you feel like you did? Uh, no. He gave me a zing at the end, but up to that, uh, before that, uh, it was quite a lovely conversation. I can't remember the end. What was the zing? Oh, it was, <laughs> it was about uh, uh, the dead Kennedys uh, surpassing crime and fame. Okay. Yes. <laughs> which, awesome. is, which is absolutely true. Right. And yeah, and not not a huge uh, surprise no, statement. No. So, um, well, but it did give you the opportunity to introduce yourself to the crowd. And yeah. That, and that's what sparked my interest because I was sitting maybe five rows behind you mm-hmm. and off to the right, but I could see you when you stood up. And um, so when you said, I was in the band, and I'll let you continue. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I uh, gosh, uh, that conversation with Todd. Uh, he started in, it was, it's always starts with, what do you do? Mm-hmm. And uh, so I have to, had to shuffle through all of my careers right. and uh, pick one <laughs> to lead with. And uh, I led with my, film, my, my career as a film producer, right. which connected with Todd uh, directly because he had seen some of my work and uh, we had mutual friends, although he and I had never uh, met. So... That worked out fine, but he kept delving, and uh, finally, I I played the uh, the music card, which was uh, my 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 brief career as a drummer in the first punk rock band in San Francisco, Crime. That's so awesome, <laughs> and um, yeah, and I remember him not really being able to rib on you for that because that's a pretty cool thing to be able to say about yourself. Right. Well, that that was the uh, the tone of all of our interaction. He. He wanted to rip me, but then when like, he found out the work I'd done, he's like, wait a minute, yeah, I, I know like, that movie. I, like I love you. that movie. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, wait a minute, I know Greg Turkington. He's a friend of mine. Right. And I've seen the movie that you made with him. So it, that, uh, that was quite, uh, That's awesome. quite, quite neat for me to uh, sort of uh, be addressing him at more as a peer right. from the audience than, than just another schlub. Right. Yeah. Subject of bullying. <laughs> yeah. Um, cause, well, you also produced The Devil and Daniel Johnston, right? Correct. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Was that, how, how did that come about? Well, um, Daniel uh, had been in a period of his life where he had stopped performing for about 10 years. Okay. And uh, the thought of making a film about him just wasn't really that feasible. He wasn't really functional. But then... Um, Around the year uh, 2000, I think it was, he started performing again, uh, much to everyone's amazement. Mm -hmm. So, and by everyone, I mean his fans, (laughs) which at that time were were not legion, but they were. It's a pretty good following. Yeah, but um, my good friend and uh, filmmaker, the director uh, Jeff Fierzig. we had bonded over our love of Daniel when we first met at the Berlin Film Festival in 1994 and thought of, talked about him and, and other people we loved. And so when Daniel started performing again, uh, we jumped on the opportunity to make a film. And it started as a very modest project. Uh, we 
thought we had access to a lot of archival material um, by other filmmakers. And then we were planning to do a brief interview and then kind of cut it together. And it was going to, it was supposed to be a fun little resting uh, project. Uh, that's not what it turned out to be. <laughs> no. It turned into a four and a half year um, ordeal, I'll say. Okay. Uh, I guess I can say that. Uh, we were uh, two and a half years in the editing room creating the film that um, IndieWire recently called the greatest music documentary of the 20th century. Wow. And it's been on hundreds of, of lists and and has uh, garnered uh, worldwide acclaim generally. Yeah. It's uh, considered well, uh, a really uh, significant piece of work. It sure is, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. And really introduced Daniel to a much wider audience and, and made him to. made him part of the culture and and gave him tremendous opportunities and really fulfilled our goal which was to uh, to allow Daniel to make a living from his music mm. which he was not doing up to the time that we met right so because he was mostly just making tapes and tapes and selling some drawings here and there and uh-huh. trading them for records and comic books but uh, we were we were able to elevate him to a place where he could uh, his music was used for Apple commercials and McDonald's commercials <laughs> and you know it's um, amazing um, how far it went. Uh, three operas were written based really? on his music. Um, he's his music was used for theme songs of television shows and. You know, so tremendous opportunities. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he was getting paid there at the end. Oh, yeah. That's good. But he died recently. And right. Very sad. And yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Did you, were mm-hmm. you able to be with him or did you, were you able to get in touch? No, I, I wasn't with him when he died. Um, but. Um, were you aware that. That he, he that it was sick? imminent? Yeah. Mm, not specifically. Okay. We, we hadn't stayed in close contact. You don't really stay in contact with Daniel Johnston. He, right. He's not, um, he, he did not function uh, normally. So um, people were, who were extremely close with him, his family, and of course his uh, former manager, Def, Jeff Tartikoff, who's uh, featured prominently in The Devil, Daniel Johnston, uh, he kept very close tabs on Daniel and would keep us informed of major events, but his death came as a surprise. Mm. Yeah, I guess it mm-hmm. did to most most people. Mm-hmm. So during the shooting of the movie, were you in Austin a lot? Were you, were... Oh yeah, uh, spent a lot of time in Austin, but more time in Waller, Texas. Okay, a godforsaken hellhole. Okay, where is it uh, that I hope never to return to again? Really? Yes. You've never been back? Uh, well, uh, since the movie shooting, uh, no, I haven't been back and have no plans to return. Right. Have you been to Austin though? Yes, I've been to Austin uh, many times. I lived in Austin for a short time, uh, and uh, I wasn't—I didn't know Daniel Johnston at the time, but I mm-hmm. saw one of his murals on the record store. On the record store, right? Like, instantly, and I was like, "Oh!" And I read, read his name. I was like, "All right, now I need to learn about him." Right. A bit. And uh, it wasn't until much later. And your movie actually is probably what really got me more interested and more. You know. Do you remember was, when you saw it? Hmm. I don't remember the year. I'm terrible at chronology, okay. but it's been a long time. Came out time. in 2005. It wasn't too long after that. Oh, okay. I have a, my, cool. my brother is deeply into music of mm-hmm. all kinds, and he's he generally gets me on board with everything worth you know hearing and uh, and seeing. So, And he's a movie fanatic as well. Cool. So, One of the fortunate 
byproducts of Daniel's untimely death is that it's given the film another life. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's been, interest in it has been high uh, since his death, and it's being screened a lot, and contracts are being renewed for television uh, around the world, and so it's nice to see... Nice to see it still has legs. Definitely. I actually watched it myself at a screening at the chapel that they had the night after he died, a sort of impromptu uh, free screening. Oh, cool. And uh, Jeff uh, Fjordzig, the director, came up from L.A., and we sat and watched it together, something we hadn't done in probably over 10 years. And uh, we were both mesmerized, and we were laughing, and... And uh, the jokes, the gags all still work. Yep. And uh, it, it, I thought the movie held up really well. That's awesome. That's <laughs> got to be a good feeling. It is a good feeling. And he's such a captivating presence that, you know, it's kind of hard to not just fall in love with what, whatever's going on. Absolutely. On screen. Yeah. The drawings are incredible. Mm-hmm. The words are just, uh, you know, yep. otherworldly. We shall not see his like again. No, not, not in this millennia, probably. Mm-hmm. All right, so do you want to talk about some other movies that you've been involved in? Or, uh, or the current one that's sure. about to debut? Um, it's up to you. Okay, well, actually, before It's your we, podcast, not mine. That's true, thank you. Uh, well, I'm just honored that you're here, so I want to talk about stuff that you also want to talk about. Sure. But I do want to ask when you, I mean, it's probably, if we could stick on Daniel Johnston just a minute longer. Sure. You described the four and a half year making of the movie mm-hmm. as an ordeal. Yes. So I don't want to just skip over that. Oh, okay. There's certain things that... Well, part of it was having to go to Waller, Texas, and, okay. and other other unpleasant places where Daniel had lived previously, like uh, like in West Virginia, and uh, and um, and then Austin, which um, you know is fun. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people talk about um, well, you know, Austin is cool, Texas is not, but Austin is, and I to that I say, well, yeah, maybe. But if Austin were in California, it would be like Chico. Uh-huh. Yeah, It'd be like a nice college town. Yeah, and uh, so it's only cool in the context of Texas. Yeah, I think so. But uh, that's especially what makes it cool, because right, because immediately outside its borders, it can get pretty uncool. I'll say. Uh-huh. So, and uh, the fact that the thing that was always weird to me is that the capital, it's the capital of the mm-hmm, state mm-hmm. and the capital building is right there across from the drag. It's on the drag. basically. Right. And that's where all the so-called gutter punks would hang out. Of course. And uh, uh, what are they? Guadalupe? Isn't that yes. how they pronounce it? Yes. That's um, how they do it. <laughs> so that's what I loved was just how weird it was that that culture sprung up there. Well, I mean, keep Austin be, weird. Right. That's, that's the slogan. That's true. Which Portland stole, right? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yes. They claimed as their own. <laughs> uh, but the film was um, what, what really uh, changed the course of the, the project from something very modest to something very epic was the discovery of Daniel's personal archive mm. and the archive that the family maintained, which we had no idea. They existed. had like all of his childhood stuff. Well, or? the the family like Daniel was obsessed with self-documentation. So every consumer grade uh, format of of preservation was there, you know, super eight film, mm-hmm. then all the, then VHS and then all the different incarnations of videotape leading up into the digital realm. 
So and then, everyone in the family was documenting themselves yes. and each other. The, fam- the, the family, the closets were filled with photo albums. Wow. You know, so there was a lot of material to go through. Do you know what the driving force was behind that? Well, uh, Daniel's father, uh, now deceased, uh, Bill Johnston, uh, c- you know, considered himself a, f- a photographer of sorts and just really liked to have home, you know, consumer. F- um, recording equipment of various kinds. So I guess Daniel kind of came by it naturally. Daniel, who, you know, developed ways of overdubbing between two cassette decks, you know, very crudely. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he, he definitely inherited some of his father's uh, techiness. Yeah, just having it around all the time mm-hmm. and being the subject of those, oh, yeah. those documentaries. But what we found in the garage, and Daniel basically lived in the garage of the family home. He sort of made it his apartment. Uh, but what we found there next to the lawnmower and and all the garden equipment and hoses and leaking oil cans were uh, huge garbage bags, like 33-gallon or bigger bags, all filled with cassette tapes. Seriously? Like how many? Most of them unmarked. Uh, literally thousands. Thousands of tapes. And those tapes represented uh, a period of Daniel's life where he essentially recorded himself every minute that he was awake. Holy shit. For years. So, Start, starting at what age? Oh, this was in his, uh, I guess, well, the tapes, there are tapes that go back to his, to his uh, childhood, but... It was really in his, I guess, probably early 20s, okay. where he was really obsessed with self-documentation. And as a result, this archive, if you could call it that, archive in a trash bag, uh, had to be gone through. So Totally unlabeled? Uh, many, most of them were unlabeled. So Amazing. we had to not only listen to them, but transcribe them. And then... Was that you and Jeff and... Jeff did uh, most of the heavy lifting, and some we parceled out. Okay, but uh, we had to. We had written transcripts of every tape, and then we had to index it and cross-index it, so that when we were editing the film and we needed the perfect line to connect something together or to describe a scene, we could find it. That sounds insane. Like it, the, just the just the record of them must have been hard to get through. It was it, well. It was just a, to look at. It was know? a huge project. It yeah. took, I mean, the preparation for the the film was it took a was took a long time. Yeah, must it's have. a big deal. So um, that was really the, uh, the 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 motivation to go deep with Daniel because so much was there. Now a lot of those tapes were filled with. You would hear TV or radio. If he was listening to TV, watching radio. Sometimes for hours and not saying a word. Not saying a word. That's amazing. So all that stuff is there. But then you'll find the tape where he recorded his own arrest at the Statue of Liberty. Nobody knew he was recording that. The police didn't know it. His friends who were with him didn't know it. But we found the tape. So in the movie, when we described the arrest... It's all real, right from the right from That's the tape. That's so cool. That's amazing. So he car- he just had a little portable recorder. Yep, he just little carried portable it recorder, everywhere, just always on. Turned it on the second he woke up and left <laughs> it until he went to bed. Yes. 
for years you said years like through his 20s and... yeah I'd, I'd have to I, I, I don't want to misspeak so I couldn't tell you the exact years but it doesn't matter it's a I mean, lot of tapes a lot of, lot of tapes. tapes a lot of cheap tapes and and are they now in, in like a vault somewhere or like, well because of the, because of the film we digitized everything so and presented the family with a digital archive at the end of the film of all the photographs and all oh, the video cool. and all the film and all everything and all the audio that we had uh, prepared for the film. So it's in good hands, and, and the family now finally understands that these things have value. Right. Did it take a long... Like, they weren't convinced during the making of the film? They, they were in garbage bags in the garage. Right, yeah. yeah <laughs> <laughs> right. But even Need as I it was more? getting more popular yeah. and being written up and having... Oh, well, could, you know... Did they believe that... The movie changed Daniel's life, and it changed the life of his family. Mm. Uh, they were able to build him his own house next door to their house, um, a virtually identical house. It was <laughs> quite interesting to see. Um, you wanted the familiarity, maybe. Right. I think that's that was important. But they finally gave him the studio to create in that he that that he deserved, that's rather really than cool. being out there in the garage right. on the concrete floor and with the bugs flying in through the door and everything. So, no, it was great. And so, you know, in Daniel's later years, uh, following the, the release of the film, he toured extensively all over the world. He recorded uh, by himself and with uh, many different artists. He collaborated on all kinds of projects. He wrote comic books. He, he did everything he ever dreamed of doing. That's great. And did you, would you get feedback from him while that stuff was happening? Like, was he telling... Or you or Jeff Fiercey? <laughs> well, our or contact ours. with him was limited. It's just limited, okay. But um, we would, you know, if we were in the same town, and we'd always go and see him and, I'm and just curious uh, have because, a few minutes with him. Sorry, I'm just curious because it's, uh, he just seems so reclusive that, you know, collaboration and world tours seem pretty far outside well, his comfort zone. He actually was, is very gregarious and loves being around people, but his family restricted his okay his uh social life shall we say okay uh people would usually have to make a pilgrimage to the house to visit him he wasn't allowed to go to friends houses uh he he could only be let out with trusted people hmm. so is that based on his just his his erratic behavior yeah okay. that and his medication schedule and you know he, he needed a lot of tending to
Let's talk more about you now, oh. if you don't mind. Who, me? Let's talk about crime. <clears throat> All right. Yeah. Do you want to, um, I mean, I didn't know about crime, the band, until you stood up at the Todd Berry oh, show. Oh, okay. And said, All right. And I, I am a fan of that of some of the bands of that time okay. in that genre, but it's not right. something I've pursued or personally been a huge, you know, I don't have a ton of knowledge about it, and I'm, right. but I'm very interested, and I'm, okay. I love music in general and I love movies and I love movies about music or just about people. So that's, I mean, that's why I was interested, but I'd love to hear, you know, firsthand. Mm -hmm. What was it like being in the first punk band in San Francisco? Well, um, it was a challenge. It was an uphill battle, but, um, because of the scene and what you were, well, you were too different from, because there, because there wasn't a scene when crime started. Right. Uh, the scene coalesced around crime and a, a couple other bands. And it coalesced around a location. We were lucky enough to have a sort of headquarters. The, the CBGBs of San Francisco was this unlikely Filipino supper club in North Beach. Mabuhe Gardens? Mabuhe Gardens, okay. yes. And uh, during the early part of the evening, it was a Filipino supper club. It looked like a, sort of a village with thatched, you know, adornments and, and big rattan chairs. And it, it looked uh, like you were sort of in a jungle clearing. Okay. But uh, when, the, um, when the Filipino families would go home, then it became the epicenter of the, uh, what came to be the punk rock scene in San Francisco. So, but was it a venue? Was it a music venue before crime discovered it? Um, or did you, are you the reason that it became? We're not the reason, but we, crime's emergence changed the whole tone of the, of the, of the venue. How did, how did you discover that <laughs> venue? Because it seems like such an unlikely pairing. It's kind of insane. Well, that, that's a story that predates my involvement in the band okay i i um was not the founding drummer of right. crime you were uh, the third i was the, the third but, but the, they went they went rather quickly before me through the second like a kind of like spinal tap the, right. dr the drummers just exploded right but all um, within the first year right oh yeah okay. definitely so i saw crime for the first time at one of their early shows and uh it was seeing this band that I had never heard of. Uh, they they had barely emerged at that point. Uh, but when I saw them, I had the experience that I just thought they were one of the greatest bands I'd ever seen. Now, I was born and raised in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I began going to concerts at a very early age. At 13, wow. I started going to clubs that allowed, allowed uh, minors oh, nice. in. Mm -hmm. And started seeing amazing bands like Alice Cooper on his first U.S. tour and uh, the James Cotton Blues Band and, you know, and Taj Mahal on his first U.S. tour. Wow. And um, a whole uh, hodgepodge of different styles of music. It, it was the, the, it was, you know, the period following Beatlemania where it was just music was exploding and all kinds of ideas. 
So I, I got into popular music in a very big way, very young. Did you have an older brother or anything? I had or? two older sisters, older but sister. they were square okay. and not into any of that stuff. They were like still listening to Johnny Mathis. And, okay. uh, you know, I was like, you know, they, they, they missed Beatlemania. And I caught it. Okay. Even so though was, I was you young. Beatlemania for the for your interests, like is that kind of what grabbed yeah, you? Yeah. Beatlemania the... was was unlike anything I've ever experienced. Yeah, I'm since. sure. I'm sure <laughs> nobody. Yeah, anyone who experienced it would probably say the same. Yeah, it just it was a feeling that you just you cannot describe. It was so ex- incredibly exciting. That's awesome. And just felt like the whole world was changing. Mm. And of course, with each subsequent album, you know, the, they evolved and changed. And it was just, you know, you dramatically, just, it's pretty it incredible just to go on that ride in real time. Yeah. I'm jealous to, of you for having been alive. <laughs> I was born too late. Yeah. I, I grew up listening to the Beatles, though, which yeah. I'm you know, forever wow. grateful for. Well, was, someone said to me once, if you don't like the Beatles, you don't like music. Yeah. <laughs> it pretty much comes down to that. Or another Although, way you could say is if you don't like the Beatles, you're wrong. <laughs> there you go. But, no, it's, to each his own, but I, it's kind of hard to imagine not at least appreciating yeah. what they've done and what they. How so they that started music everything. Forever. I became an early subscriber to Rolling Stone magazine, which used to be just kind of a little cheap little newspaper tabloid folded uh-huh. folded in four. Really, parts. that's how. Yeah. It's, oh, that's cool. Yeah, and um, and just began to read about the bands, and you know, I loved the Doors, and I loved. I loved all the early, late 60s, early 70s band. I just, you know, and how, well, how all the hard ones. Okay. So when I was in Cincinnati, the bands that I saw that really got me going were the really hard-edged ones. And I'm talking about the MC5, mm-hmm. we saw many times, amazing. and Iggy and the Stooges. That's amazing. Both of whom came from Ann Arbor. Yeah, I'm from Ann Arbor. And so they, I know, uh, I know about the there was a little circuit that they would do that Cincinnati was part of that. It's not too far away. Mm-hmm. And they would come through on a regular basis, and I just—they just blew my mind. Amazing! And you were one of the youngest. You were among the youngest young. kids there. Yep, that's really cool. How did your parents? Did your parents know that you were doing this, or did? Yeah, they, they did. Were and they squares like your sisters? Or uh, no, my parents were hipper than my sisters. Okay. I don't know how that <laughs> happened, but they—they uh, they, they just were. Okay, so they were okay with you. They doing were all right. These shows. Yep. Amazing. Very cool. And that was the beginning of you know. FM radio as we know as we knew it then mm-hmm. um, and very exciting times to be alive yeah for sure okay mm-hmm. so that led you to, to crime well, when, well when did you move to San okay. Francisco I moved to San Francisco in 1973 okay I was born in 72 okay <laughs> I came here to go to college and I never left nice where'd you go to college I went to this uh, strange experimental school called the New College of California I went there too I have a degree from there no kidding yep. Well, then you and right, I... Right before they closed. Oh, well, I my degree dates back to uh, 76. That's awesome. <laughs> pretty, I mean, I'm, I'm sure it changed a lot during it those did. years, but um, I had such an amazing experience there, and I still will value it forever. I, I did Me not too. like college the first time I went, ah. and I dropped out. I was just in the wrong place. I found out about New College from a display ad, a little ad they ran in the back of Rolling Stone. Oh, that's awesome. And it was, I'll never forget the ad. It was, it was a black background. It had a picture of the whole earth on it. Nice. And it said across the top, New College, New, New College of California. And underneath it said, learn how to learn. Nice. And there was a phone number. That's so a great ad. I was reaching college age and starting to look around. 
And I looked at more traditional schools, but I called the number and I found out about the school. And then the summer I was 17, I was a junior, uh, after my junior year, uh, I drove across country with friends and I ended up in, in San Francisco and I decided to go visit New College, which at that time was located in a warehouse on the Sausalito waterfront. Oh, okay. And uh, I think it was their second year of existence when nice. I when I showed up. And the school was this tiny little building. And um, there were, I believe, uh, about 40 students, so uh, cool. 20 faculty members, and two administrators. That was the whole school. That's incredible. And I walked in and I introduced myself and they took me on a tour, which involved basically looking around the room. Right, just one room. Yeah. And uh, I thanked them and got a you know, whatever literature they handed me. And they said, uh, where are you going? I said, well, I'm leaving. They said, well, stay, just enroll. Just right on the spot. And I said, well, I, 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 I'm flattered, but I think I should go back to Cincinnati and finish high school first. I had another year to go. I said, but I'll keep you in mind. So as fate would have it, um, I ended up there. That's so great. And, uh, I moved here to, uh, to go there and and it was a great thing it was a free form school at that time you could design your own curriculum yeah, it still was when still I, was when I did it. Yep. it was really that's, neat that's why it, i chose it it was unaccredited when i when i enrolled but it received accreditation during the time i was there and i was it's so funny we're on the exact ends of each of its entire mm-hmm. life because it had accreditation up until they started getting in trouble right. and then lost it and, and then, then lost it and then went under yeah it's too too bad because it was founded by a renegade Jesuit priest named Jack Leary. And uh, I knew him well. He was very present in the school and a uh, very interesting guy. And later a scandal emerged about about him even after he was dead. And uh, what was the scandal? that eventually sank the school. That's what it was that, that sank it? Well, I know it's hard to believe that, you know, he was already dead, but then it somehow... It did. It, there was a big article. I think it was in the SF Weekly. They did the whole expose of, <clears throat> pardon me, the expose of what what went down. But um, it involved some sordid stories about him when he was the uh, president of Gonzaga University okay. up in uh, somewhere in the Pacific Northwest. I forget where Gonzaga is, Portland or mm-hmm. somewhere. Somewhere I think. up there, and. Uh, he, he was, um, I guess the, the scandal was that he was sort of run out of town on a rail. And he ended up in San Francisco and founded New College. Okay. So... Do you have any idea what his behavior was? That well, I think it him? involved it involved contact with students. Okay. But... We don't uh, have to get too detailed. I, I just... I, I just don't really know any more details than that. Uh, just what I read in the article. And but, is that actually... Because I thought that they, when they finally went under, it had to do with financial issues like oh, they had spread themselves yes. too thin. And, well, of course. But they it, were they were always in financial trouble. Okay. Never stable. But and then, uh, although I was on the committee that uh, the search committee that went to find the permanent home which turned out to be the mortuary on Valencia, Valencia. Street at 777 Valencia that we bought and that became the school for many years and now 
of course, it's the chapel, a fantastic venue and a restaurant and bar awesome. and everything yeah. else. I used to, yeah. I did some screen printing in there and I did some video editing and I did my administration, you know, administrative well, stuff. You'll be, you'll be amused to know when I saw it, it was still operational as a mortuary oh, and, it, cool. and it was absolutely gorgeous. It was the, the rugs were thick, deep, burgundy wool pile nice that you sank into and, and the, the dark wood, wood the everywhere. wood was everywhere and beautiful and the chapel and, was beautiful, uh, the chapel was beautiful. Uh, and so upstairs was the embalming room mm-hmm. which was a uh, sort of tile lined room that when i saw it still had two porcelain slabs in it uh-huh. and all the pumps and the hoses and suction things were all there and we looked at that and we thought well this would make a good art room. Nice. And that's what it became for many years. That's amazing. Yeah. That's where you spun clay. Yes. <laughs> that's very cool. Um, that's funny we have that connection. Yeah, that's really interesting. <laughs> my, my uncle is a funeral director too, so uh, I'm familiar with there you mortuaries. Go. And, and Daniel writes songs about funeral homes, uh-huh. and that's a whole thing in his thing. It all ties together. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so then let's get back to crime. So you were playing okay. at the Mabuhay Gardens, right. Filipino so, restaurant. Well, I saw crime perform there. Right. I went there to see another friend's band, a guy named a guy named Novak, who had a band called Novak. Okay, and he was a, a composer and a student and a, a studio um, operator over at Mills College. Cool. And he had recorded Crime's second single, uh, "Murder by Guitar and Frustration," over at the Mills Studio. The first single was recorded at Blue Bear, uh, which was a music school, and they had some kind of student engineer, I'm told, who uh, uh, was relatively inexperienced. This is legend even to me. I wasn't there, but apparently um, when the band came in, they instructed the engineer to turn all of the knobs all the way up. That's their only instruction. instruction. So he did, and... and, uh, he ended up running from the room, running screaming from the uh, from the engine from the control room. He was terrified. Uh, he says, "I can't, I can't deal with this." And that's how the first single was born. Amazing. And Which that was... became that became the first uh, the first punk rock single on the West Coast, uh, released by any band. And that was um, "Hot Wire My Heart" and uh, "Baby You're So Repulsive." Amazing. So "Hot Wire My Heart," of course, one of Crime's. Hits, if uh-huh. you can, if you can use that word in quotes. Sure. About a band that you know sort of barely bubbled above obscurity. Uh-huh. Uh huh. But um, uh, that song was important because it was covered by Sonic Youth. Oh wow! On their uh, sister LP, which was a a breakthrough record a for great them. Great record, yeah. And um, it was the only cover song on the record. I didn't know that was by Crime until I watched documentary so when that record came out and sonic youth was hot uh everybody's asking who's crime nice so it brought a lot of attention to the band and and as a result that coupled with the internet has made crime more famous today than we ever (laughs) were when we were actually together right (laughs) which is pretty cool I mean, I don't know if you wanted, did you want to be famous right right away, right at the time? Of course. Because everybody in New York, like there was stuff. Why would you want to be in a band? Yeah, I guess (laughs) otherwise. Um, But so I'm, I'm just curious about the, the Filipino restaurant. Like were the the owners of the restaurant cool with the type of, because your shows would get a a bit raucous, right? Yes. The owner of the club was a a guy, a very uh, interesting guy named Ness Aquino. 
And he was an entrepreneur. He not only had the Mabuhay Gardens, but he also produced a cable access show uh, that was sort of a Filipino variety show. Cool. And his, the star and the host of the show was this um, uh, female singer named Amapola. And the show was called Amapola Presents, uh, produced by Nessa Kino. So he would plug the Mabuhay Gardens, come there for dinner on the show, and it was all very folksy and homemade. And he would have acts on the show and uh, singers and performers of various types. But he handed the punk rock aspect of the Mabuhay Gardens over to another entrepreneur named Dirk Dirksen. Dirk Dirksen, who's related to Senator, the famous Senator Dirksen, uh, was a guy who had a keen sense of promotion and, and a very wry sense of humor. And Dirk took over the nighttime booking. And he put together a hodgepodge of performers. At that time, there was no such thing as punk rock. So he was looking for anything that would bring people in the door. Mm-hmm. So this would be cabaret singers, what we would call cabaret singers. That's sort today. of more what I would imagine. Yes. Like that after All dinner. kinds of, uh, perf- and then in those days, performance artists were doing things on stages, uh-huh. more so than today, I think. And... Uh, he was just sort of throwing stuff at the wall to see what stuck. And then these bands would come in, uh, bands that were newly formed, bands that had only a loose command of their instruments, and uh, something began to click. So with Crime and uh, another band that started right about the same time, The Nuns, Mm -hmm. became sort of the twin pillars of the early punk rock scene. And then all the bands that followed, we called them second generation bands, third generation bands. Generations, of course, were measured in weeks or months. (laughs) Because if you started a month before another band, you were already already old. So uh, the Avengers, uh, the Dead Kennedys, these were all bands that followed. And they all came through that venue. And they all came through that venue. They all started there. That was really the the, uh, incubation grounds. For them and Flipper and the Sleepers and, you know, some of these names will be familiar to you and some won't. Um, but uh, there's, you know, there were, there became, you know, dozens and then hundreds of bands that formed. And bands were forming and breaking up on the same night. Okay. And uh, it was a very exciting time. Yeah. Um, I became very close friends with the artist Bruce Connor and worked with him uh, for many years on on a variety of projects. And he used to say that he loved the Mubuhai Gardens because he just loved seeing bands' first shows. Nice. Because they were such disasters. (laughs) Always And and extremely entertaining, yes. excellent. Once they became polished, he wasn't interested in them anymore. He liked liked the first shows. The birth of a band. (laughs) Yes. That's great. Well, all right, but Crime had had a specific... I mean, since there was nothing to compare it to, at least on this side of the country, mm-hmm. um, what would you, how would you, I mean, what were some of the influences? It's, you talk about it a bit, well, actually, sorry, do you want to say the names of the other bandmates? Oh, sure. Well, at the time I joined, it was, uh, well, the two front men. What, one of the things that made crime unique was that we had not one, but two front men. Uh-huh. And they kind of, they kind of were pillars on each side of the stage. And they were very equal, but they played off of each other. And um, 
I'm talking about the great Johnny Strike and Frankie Fix, the two front men of the band. They both play guitar and they both, both sang. Yes, exactly. And they both compo- They both wrote. Okay. So the way it usually worked was that if one of them wrote a song, they would play rhythm and sing on that song, and the other would play lead. Cool. And then they'd switch back and forth. So it was kind of neat. That is cool. They had very complimentary styles. Mm-hmm. They um, had been in a band, a sort of band that never actually really formed, but sort of was a concept, uh, a band by the name of one of the tracks on your record, Space Invaders. Oh, cool. Yes. Nice. So, so they sort of never took off, but they were doing I'm something. I'm not sure they and... ever actually played a real show. Okay. But they acted like they were a band for a little while. And right. then that eventually mutated into the concept that they created, which was crime. Now, crime's gimmick, of course, was that they wore, in the early days, police uniforms with badges, and the whole badge thing was a big, was a big um, iconic uh, uh, statement of the band. The kind of cognitive dissonance of having sort of a band called crime, the band dresses like police, but they're not exactly police we'd have our collars turned up or we'd have some alterations to the uniform right. but we were actually purchasing uniforms in the same place where sfpd was purchasing them it's amazing. and then we would sort of customize them and that became our our uh, trademark for a while a lot of our uh, most important early shows were uh, in the uniforms in- including our most famous show, which was uh, playing in the exercise yard at San Quentin Prison. I love that. I was just about to ask, how the yeah. hell did that come about, and how did they let you be in the just right there with all the inmates? Well, they 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 let us because they weren't paying too close attention, which is uh, both a good thing like and a bad the, thing. In the video, it looks yeah. like nobody like they're just kind of hanging out. There's one guard up on the wall. One guard, right? Paying up attention. A, looking, looking down with the machine gun. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, well, that happened. Uh, it started as a as a uh, more of an art project. Uh, I had befriended uh, a, an artist named Lynn Hirschman, who was working with a, a group called Museum Without Walls, and they were the idea was to put art in unpl- unusual places. So she had organized this event and asked us if we would play. It was too perfect. So of course we said yes. And it turned out to be a show that we've been that became legendary. We've been coasting on that for many years, and did garner the piece of press that I am most proud of of everything in my career. And that is, we made it into the Weekly World News. Oh wow! Yeah, that's awesome. So, had my picture in the Weekly World News next to the aliens right. and Bigfoot and the furry baby and, and the furry baby and I don't know, Bat Boy maybe in there. Yeah, I know it's a big deal. It's better than the pitchfork. Yeah, I think so. That's awesome. Um, so, what was it like though being in there? I mean, the inmates seem to be really into it. They're all holding up their posters. Well, and, they are. But, but, they but there's a reason. Like there's a reason to murder you and, and uh... yeah. Well, they were they weren't they weren't so murderous. But okay. the way it worked, we were out in the exercise yard on a concrete slab on a hot sunny day, so it was uh, pretty intense. Mm-hmm. And in, in, uh, your, in your full uniform, full uniforms, right? And the way it worked was that the the inmates divided themselves um, into ethnic groups. And there was a there were a variety of performers on the show that day, and when an African American band would play, um, all the non African Americans would stand up as a group and walk 
to the far side of the yard as far away as possible. Wow. And when a uh, another band would play, then they would then the African Americans would stand up and they would walk away and the others would come back. Okay. I like to say that when crime came on, everybody got up and walked away. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> However, we brought our girlfriends with us. Yikes. And they were dancing in front of the stage and they brought everybody back. So there was a kind of demilitarized zone between the front of the stage and where the inmates were allowed to be. Right. A kind of a gravel area about, oh, I don't know, eight or 10 feet wide. With a few guards with shotguns? Well, the guards were scattered around, but the girls were dancing in that area and the inmates were taking pebbles and trying to flick them off of the girls' asses. So oh, that uh, that brought them all back. Plus, we handed out those posters that, that had a sort of a provocative BDSM uh-huh. uh, image on it that we thought the inmates would, would like, and they did, and they all got a kick Each out of that. Each other and yes. proud, you know, not letting go of it too, right. too easily. Were yeah. you terrified to have your girlfriends there? Uh, not terrified, but concerned. Were uh, they, we were, how were they? Did they feel? Well, we all, we all were concerned because we were told before we went in that San Quentin operates on the no hostage rule, which means that if you're grabbed, they will not negotiate for your release. Now, that's for your that's protection. Horrifying. Right. Because they, um, the idea is that the, the prisoners know that it won't do them any good. Right. So it won't get them out. So. Why bother? Right. That said, you know, you're, you're concerned going into an environment like that, but, you know, we lived yeah. to tell the story. And you got to play, play <laughs> the, one of the only sets ever yes. in, that, in that yard. Yes. Actually, they did. They, I was contacted uh, about a year ago by a guy who, who told me that he produced uh, a number of concerts there and actually had a TV, some kind of, I guess, cable local cable show where he you know was like sort of like live from san quentin so i don't know it's crazy yeah just during that time Uh, i guess immediately following that he had contacted me because he knew about the show we had played but that had not been under his auspices so right he was wanted to try he was trying to complete the archive of of who had played at San Quentin. That's nuts. Yeah. Uh, do you think, was Johnny Cash the first, or, or no, because Elvis also went into jails, I think? I think he did. I think Elvis did. Maybe it was just a but, thing that you yeah. do, like go entertain the sure. guys who can't yeah, get out. absolutely. That's I don't think Johnny cool. Cash was the first person to ever go into a prison, but he recorded one of his best records there. Right. Yeah. That's pretty interesting. I mean, it's a, re- it's a great video to watch. It's really... It's, it's fun. It's pretty... There's actually a lot more of it that's never seen the light of day. We're hope, we're hoping to bring that out at some point. Oh, good. Yeah. Well, let me know if that happens. I will. To see it. We integrate some of the San Quentin footage that had never been seen before. Actually, uh, that was shot on Super 8 film uh, by uh, my then-girlfriend, now-wife. Yeah. Um, she was your girlfriend way back yes, then? Yes. Uh-huh. You're married oh, yeah. now? Yep. Oh, that's awesome. And we, uh, she shot a role of Super 8 film that we were able to, to cut in seamlessly to the uh to the film how about that sync beautiful yeah well and here how about the segue into the, talking about the film oh yeah there is a film <laughs> yeah so after 40 years uh i took a collection of uh 16 millimeter color film footage that i'd been sitting on waiting for somebody to pay me to finish it and uh no one ever did so 
another bandmate of mine from another band in modern times heard about this footage and and uh, and begged me to uh, let him have a crack at editing it. Oh, cool! And out of uh, exasperation, I said, "Sure, le- sure, let's do it." And so we started the rather arduous process of transferring this material to uh, digital format so it could be edited uh, properly and, and then really working on the sound. Now, we were lucky that the centerpiece of this film, which is premiering Thursday, November 14th at 7 p.m. at the Victoria Theater in San Francisco in the Mission, uh, can you it, get tickets in advance? You or? can get tickets in advance. Okay. We'll talk about that. Okay. But the film is called San Francisco's First and Only Rock and Roll Movie, Crime 1978. And uh, this footage uh, really was the center. The centerpiece of the film is a, is a live concert at the Mabuhai Gardens. And what I realized shortly as we began to uh, delve into it, that this material represented not only the best filmed because there was there were five cameras shooting simultaneously uh our show which was unheard of at that time (laughs) not only the best shot but also the one of the best recordings came out of it of any band at that period of that period at the mubuhai gardens not uh it's not a, a very friendly venue for recording the ceilings are low everything was cramped the stage is low but uh, we were able to pull out uh, really spectacular uh, images and uh, recordings. That, and the recordings were worked on by my son, George, who's an engineer and has a studio. And he was able to take these uh, two mono tracks and turn them into this luxurious 5.1 surround mix. Wow. So the film is totally immersive. I don't know under what conditions you were able to look at it, but... When you see it in a surround theater, it's really something. I haven't seen it like that, and I would like to. You will. Oh, I, I hope if you, I hope you'll come to the show. I will for sure. Fourteenth. The show is uh, is called is uh, is an event uh, under the name Cops versus Aliens, and that's I guess on f- Facebook and Eventbrite. So search for Cops versus Aliens, and that'll take you right to the ticket info. And there'll be other things happening. There'll be music and stuff. Before oh yeah. Then. We've got surprises. We're adding surprises daily, nice. including some things I'm not even sure I'm going to talk about, but, uh, what we can talk about is in addition to screening this film, which is uh, 35 minutes long. So, um, all uh, crime sets were notoriously <laughs> about 20 minutes long. We uh-huh. could do about 12 songs in 20 minutes. And then we we're off. And you only had, you didn't have too many more than 12 songs, right? <laughs> not, not for a Total? while. Okay. <laughs> That's about right. Uh-huh. But um, we're also screening, a, a rare screening of David Bowie's uh, Ziggy Stardust film. Oh, cool. By uh, D.A. Pennebecker. And uh, we have permission from the Pennebecker family to uh, screen the film, which is nice. We have a 16 millimeter print. So people will be actually looking at it on film the way it was meant to be seen. That's really cool. And we're featuring a live performance by the legendary Stardust Cowboy, who David Bowie admitted often uh, and freely. uh, He stole the name Stardust from so that he created his character Ziggy Stardust in deference to the legendary Stardust Cowboy. Wow. Legendary Stardust Cowboy still performing. Uh, in his band, Klaus Floride, uh, b- 
bass player of the uh, Dead Kennedys. Okay. So and other other luminary musicians. His band is fantastic. That's excellent. And if you've never seen the legendary Stardust Cowboy perform, he will blow your mind. Oh, I can't wait. That's excellent. <laughs> also, uh, Ron the Ripper Greco, the other uh, member of band, I, the band I was getting to when we got de- derailed. Oh so, yeah, the, he's the bassist, the bass player. Uh, we'll be doing a doing a little solo uh, acoustic uh, number to warm up the crowd, and we're going to have a Ziggy Lookalike contest. We already have entries, nice. so uh, it'll be a fun night, and there'll be even more surprises. But we're also proud to announce the release of the soundtrack album and the DVD for anybody who still watches DVDs. Old people like me. Yeah, I still have a few. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we'll be um, offering that that night in a limited edition. It's going to be very exciting. And plus, we're going to have some new crime merch. Nice. It's going to blow your mind. drummer who were some of your oh, well, idols you or influences i understand that i i never really i wasn't a drummer at the time that i joined crime okay they uh, needed a drummer they needed a drummer and i was so enthralled with the band that i decided in that moment that i was going to be that drummer now i had played music before mm-hmm. but not a, a traditional trap set okay. so i auditioned by sending the band a letter with pictures and said that uh, it was very clear that I did not own drums and I did not play them, but that I knew I was destined to be in this band and that if they just let me in, I would go get some drums and learn how to play them. And uh, to make my application stand out, I put it in a big envelope and covered it completely in one-cent stamps, front and back, and sent it special delivery to the band's post office box. Well, what I later came to learn was it was, of course, the only application that they received. (laughs) And I got a call from Johnny, and he said, uh, you're in the band. So I went out the next day, and I went to Don Weir's Music City, which predated Guitar Center here in town as the big music store. 
And I went into the drum department and I said, I'm here to buy some drums. And they said, well, what kind do you want? Well, I didn't know there were different kinds, but uh, the only name I knew was Ludwig because I knew R Ringo played that. Okay. So uh, I said, uh, Ludwig? And they said, sure. And they said, well, what kind? And I said, well, I just joined the loudest band in the city, so I guess I need the loudest drums. <laughs> they said, oh, right this way. You need the stainless steel drums, which have gone on to become a, a, a legendary and, and highly collectible uh, series from that period. So the stainless steel drums became the official crime drums. I still have them to this day, and they're still in use. Amazing. But uh, yeah, so, and our first show was, after I joined, was in two weeks. It had already <laughs> been booked. And um, I had two weeks to learn how to play drums and to learn the set in a credible enough way that I could get through a show. Now, crime was always a headlining band. Right. We always prided ourselves on that we would never open for any other band. There were only two bands we said we would ever open for. One was the Sex Pistols, and the other were the Ramones. Now, we were offered an opening slot on the Sex Pistols show at Winterland, which turned out to be their last show. Mm. And we turned it down because they offered us the third bill rather than the second bill. Okay. And we did open for the Ramones at a club called the Old Waldorf um, in the financial district. Um, it was uh, it was a great night to That's open awesome. for the Ramones. That's mm -hmm. very cool. Yeah, and you didn't feel like you were second fiddle. You, there was well, like acceptable. You know, we we it. we acknowledge the the uh, the supremacy of of the Ramones and the Sex Pistols. They were uh, astounding. But but were you well received at the at that show? At the oh Ramones? yeah, everybody. Was oh yeah, happy. A lot of our fans were there, so it's good. It's great. Um and okay so. You, in two weeks, yes. you, you just pounded out. You had their set. I, yeah, I had to learn to... the set. Luckily, everything was in 4-4, four, four, so I only had one time signature to learn. That's a good thing. That is good. But I didn't know anything about how to hold the sticks or how to set the drums up. And or... no one was giving you any instruction? Well, Ron, Ron the Ripper Greco had been a drummer earlier in his career. So he was supposed to be guiding me, but he, he didn't offer much assistance. Okay. As a result... Uh, I tore my tore my hands and everything to shreds. Just I, holding the wrong way. Or well, I asked the, or... at the drum store. They asked me what kind of sticks do you want, and I said, "Well, I just I joined the loudest band. I just bought the loudest drum kit. I guess I want the biggest sticks." <laughs> yeah. So they gave me these marching band sticks that I could barely even close my hands around, and I thought, "Well, that'll make them louder." I learned later that the size of the stick does not exactly determine the loudness no. of the sound it determines the weight that's for sure <laughs> yes and i tore my hands to shreds and for that first show i actually had to have the sticks uh taped to my hands because my hands were so full of blisters and broken blisters and blood blisters and just by the end of one set well no or by the end of two, we two weeks okay. of trying to learn the drums <laughs> and learn the set so I was in very very bad shape, but and were you passable? Were they were they? I was passable. There were I I I remember the drummers of other bands were like right up front. They wanted to see like who's this new crime drummer. Oh, it must have been so. It was a lot of pressure, but I made it through. And you know I like to say I'm the worst drummer who ever became semi famous for playing the drums because I really wasn't a drummer and never really became one. No, still uh, you're, you're in a band still. currently, right? 
Uh, I am. I play ukulele in, okay. a, in a fake jug band called the Poontang Wranglers. Nice. But that's a whole other story. Okay. But in terms of drums, no. I uh, when I was in crime for two and a half years. I was there from uh, early 77 to like mid-79. And um, when I left, I thought, well, you know, I've been playing drums for a couple of years. Maybe I should, maybe it's time now that I'm not in the band to take some time to maybe actually learn how to play drums. Uh-huh. Maybe be a drummer someday. That's a good idea. I thought, okay, all right. So I started taking drum lessons with a friend of mine who was a very highly skilled drummer and, and gave lessons. And uh, we sat down and he said, there's only one book you need to buy. It's called Stick Control. It was written in 1932 and it's just the rudiments. And that's the only drum book you ever need. So I bought it and we sat down for the first lesson. And of course, the first lesson is left, right, left, right, uh-huh. followed by right, left, right, left. And uh, so I did that and he said, okay, now practice five hours a day at every metronome setting and then we'll go on to the next rudiment. And I'm, wait a minute, what? That sounds you have to, exceptionally well, he said, tedious. Well, you, you have to practice five hours a day if you're going to be a drummer. I'm like, I don't have that kind of time. So that was that started and ended my actual drumming career right there. You had one lesson? Uh, yeah, one lesson. I'm like, no, I, I, I can't devote that amount of time to it. It's just not in the cards for me. <laughs> that's about, that's maybe, I had maybe four or five more guitar lessons than that uh-huh. and that's about where i drew the line too he's you like know? go do these scales mm, <laughs> yeah i don't think so i know but i do want to keep playing the instrument it's tough know? in the beginning yeah before you have your ten thousand hours in exactly yeah. <laughs> um so then had you you moved did you move over to film or did that was that a natural transition had you already yeah. had an interest before i did have an interest i had an interest in film uh really all my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father loved film, and we would go to a double feature every Saturday, usually at two different theaters. Oh, cool. Yeah. And he, my father despised Walt Disney uh-huh. and wouldn't allow, basically wouldn't allow me to see Disney films. So, Did you want to? Um, not particularly. Okay. I, didn't, I didn't. What did I know at that age? But he took, he took me to films that he wanted to see. So as a result, I saw a tremendous amount of age-inappropriate material mm-hmm. at an early age, which had a big impact on me in all kinds of ways. Can you think of a few big ones that stand out? Well, apparently, and I can only go by family legend here because I don't have a direct memory of this, but I was taken to see, at age three, I was taken to see Ingmar Bergman's Wild Strawberries. That movie's super intense. Super intense movie. Even as an adult, that's a, it'll freak yeah, you out. Exactly. And I... Um, uh, oh my God, I didn't, must have shaped some but, part of your brain. I didn't speak Swedish. Nope. I still don't. Yep. And uh, I wasn't reading, uh, so the subtitles went right by me. But the imagery but, uh, of that movie... The imagery was, was strong. Pretty frightening. And I'm told that when I came out of the theater, I turned to my parents and said, that's the worst movie I've ever seen. Now, that's where it sat. But after that, I began to have a recurring nightmare throughout my entire childhood. And I had no idea what this nightmare meant. It was completely baffling to me. But years later, when I was in my early 20s, I had the occasion to see Wild Strawberries again. And when I saw it again... I was immediately struck because I realized that the the famous dream sequence in that film 
was my recurring nightmare through my whole childhood. So I borrowed a nightmare. But it's a really. It wasn't even mine. But it's such a. I mean, I remember. That's the thing that still, when I think of that movie, it instantly goes to that scene. Yeah. The person turning around and that. Yeah. And the court, the horse drawn uh, hearse. It's giving me the shivers just thinking about it. Catching the wheel and then the hearse, the coffin falls out. So every night you dreamt that. I had that dream like shot for shot. And you would wake up screaming or. Well, not screaming, but it was disturbing. But I didn't know what it meant. That's so messed up. And of up. course, when I saw the movie as a, as in my twenties, I'm like, oh, had it makes been all going the sense on? The did it go away after that? Yeah, it went away instantly, so right after seeing it. Yes, that's amazing. <laughs> as soon as I understood what the, what the heck it was, did that leave you just psychologically demented? Or you know, I don't do think, think demented. Uh, I wouldn't say that. I've never been did called it leave that. You, sorry, I don't mean to insult <laughs> you. I just did it mean. I just feel like it would. It's such a. It's way too early to see that. First of all, and it seems like it would get into a part of your psyche it did that would stay a part of your psyche yes what it did was awaken me to the power of film okay which well, i loved and then and then i found good. the family's super eight consumer bell and howl mm. uh, camera and projector as a kid and started making little movies nice so i started that and then in college i got my first super eight camera which was hot at that time yeah. and started making movies in college so I kind of had been dabbling in movies from my early childhood on. And then at the Mubuhai Gardens, when I met the great artist and filmmaker Bruce Connor, we became friends, and that really embarked, uh, I embarked on my producing career. We collaborated on a project that was uh, um, a very unwieldy, very difficult project uh, uh, to make a film about a very famous uh, black gospel a quartet, singing quartet called the Soul Stirrers. Oh, cool. They were the first uh, touring um, gospel group. Um, From where? They started in Trinity, Texas okay. in uh, 1924. Wow. And they still exist today really? in some form. But their heyday was in the late 40s and early 1950s when uh, Sam Cooke was in their band. Oh, uh, before he went into the pop field, he sang gospel with the Soul Stirrers. And he uh, elevated them. He was very popular, uh, even in the gospel world. Uh, so they were, uh, they were the Beatles of gospel music at one point. They had wow. a nationally syndicated radio show out of Chicago, and they had a long, amazing career. And, it, and their rise uh, paralleled the civil rights movement mm. in the United States. So we set out to make a film that kind of told this huge epic story using the band as the focal point and then expanding from there. That film to date is unfinished, but I am readdressing that film after 40 some years and, uh, and uh, aim to finish it. It's the, uh, the, 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 the the albatross that hangs around my neck. Okay. Is it the big one? It's the only, is it the only one? It's the big, it's the, it's the big producing albatross. That's just, you know, vexed me for all these years. It's a pretty long stretch to be hanging on to. Well, it was, uh, you know, the crime film was the same way up until recently when, uh, we made the push to finish it. Nice. Yeah. You've been thinking about doing this since for decades. Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, and, uh, so, I mean, I just did a little bit of reading to to find out more about the band itself. Um, but so one of the members died, I think, quite a way, quite a while ago. Yeah, and, and one died quite recently. Right, crime had a high mortality rate. Mm. Um, 
both of the drummers that preceded me are now dead. Mm. Um, a long time, long time dead. Um, drug related. Mm. I, um, and then uh, Frankie Fix, uh, the um, more diminutive of the two uh, front men, uh, died of drug-related problems quite some time ago. And recently, with, uh, about a year ago, uh, Johnny Strike succumbed to cancer. Mm, sorry. Yeah. Terrible Were you still loss. in touch? With oh, John, Johnny and I were always the close. Uh, we're always very close okay. and remain close through the years. Oh, yes. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. So you were with him. I, I was in, with him when he died. Wow. Yeah. And had he, how, he, did he see the workings of this movie coming? He did. To, to, he okay. saw an early cut. He okay. saw he saw a rough cut of the film. Oh, good. It wasn't polished and didn't have everything in it that it does now. But that's okay, right? It's I mean, okay. He, he got to see it, and he was very pleased. That's and, awesome. And it was great to be able to show it to him. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. I'm really, I'm glad you got at least that far along. Yeah. Um, absolutely wow so then you're you hank rank are uh, hanging on and, and ron the ripper and ron the ripper right and then there then there's joey decay who was in the band sort of in and out over a period of time he uh, replaced ripper temporarily when ripper went off somewhere and uh and then when ripper came back uh joey became the band's synthesist during okay. their during their uh the new wave, the, the new wave phase. swan song phase. Yes, nice. yes, the third single. Oh, that's excellent. Yeah. Which is what? Which was uh, Maserati and uh, Maserati. What's on the other side of that single? See, this was after I left the band. Okay, so uh, that's okay. It'll it can come. Be, it it'll can come to me up. in a minute. <laughs> nice. Um, Gang- gangster funk, I think. Okay. Yes. Were you still a fan after you had left the band, or did, well, or did I, you just, was I, it a bad? It was. It was. A, it was a somewhat acrimonious breakup. Okay. Uh, I left when uh, heroin came into the band. I see. And it became clear that the band could not function under the weight of uh, of the drug. Mm. Were and, you the only one not using? Uh, uh, at that time. Uh, uh, Ron Ron Greco never used, mm. and 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 neither did I. Okay. Uh, but uh, Frankie started, and Johnny followed, and it was uh, it was tough. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, I don't think much of anything can get done on yeah. heroin. I used to tell him, no, 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 we you have to make it first, and then develop your heroin habit. Right. It doesn't work the other way around. Yeah, <laughs> I can't do that one yeah. out of order. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So you left for that reason. I left. And then... It just, it, the band was falling apart and yeah. it's, it was time for me to leave. Okay. Is that when, and you went into other bands or is that when you started looking into movies? More? Well, I would, that sort of was my transition into movies because okay. I was working with Bruce on the Solster project and then that led me to other filmmakers and other films. And then all of a sudden I was in this world of independent film and I was going to film festivals all over the world and had films in Sundance and nice. you know, so I was kind of off in another trajectory, but always as a producer or also director, uh, or? always as a producer. No, okay. I, I'm not a director. Not a director, at all. A director okay. is a skilled 
job. Yeah, it's a totally different A lot of people thing. think, oh, I'll just be a director. Well, no. it kind of, you kind of need to know some stuff about yeah. some things. And you have to be a certain way. You have to be able to exactly. manage people and yeah. stick to your vision, yeah. which is, and, and try to convey your vision to a whole bunch of other people. Yeah. Whereas a producer is more like a project manager and okay. keeps everything going and makes sure everything is where it's supposed to be. And, and you can do keeps that. It going. Yeah. I'm, I'm not bad at that. I yeah. kind of took over managing crime when I joined. Okay. There wasn't, you know, Johnny was sort of doing it, but didn't want to. And, and I had the kind of organizational skills and drive that helped to push us a little bit forward. Nice. I organized our few tours. You know, we, we didn't tour much. We did a Pacific Northwest tour and we went to LA a few times. We headlined the Whiskey A Go-Go, like my idols, The Doors. That's cool. And, uh, and we headlined uh, The Troubadour, which is now hot again because of the uh, Elton John movie oh, I guess right. has a big scene there. I haven't seen it, I haven't either. but everybody's talking about the Troubadour again. So these kind of legendary LA clubs, you know, we were able to perform in and it was just, That's just felt awesome. great. You did pretty See much your... all the things yep. you would want to do as a punk band. Exactly. That's Including staying at the, uh, the legendary um, uh, motel uh, where all, Here? The, where all the, the bands Phoenix? played. No, the, oh. no, not the in LA. Okay. Um, oh. the, um, um, drawing a blank on it I right now. Too, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah, it's now a Best Western, but it was uh, <laughs> the. Uh, it'll come back to me in a minute. <laughs> well, and you also got to play San Quentin. Which yes, is pretty, San Quentin, pretty legendary. Got in the Weekly World News. Got in GQ magazine because oh, of our police uniforms. We did a little layout for them, which was quite entertaining. But when in the 70s? Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. I know it's funny. That's really cool. So that uh, must exist somewhere. That's, yeah, yeah. I'd like to see that. Yeah. Wow. Well, very cool. Um, <laughs> how do you feel like we? Uh, I feel like we covered some good stuff. Do you want a lot of stuff? Do you want to run down any more of the movies that you've been involved in? Gosh, uh, let's see. What would people be entertained by? Uh, well, I have a. I guess I should talk about things that are people can actually see easily. So on Netflix, uh, a film I produced a few years ago called Entertainment, starring. Greg Turkington oh, cool. uh, and his alter ego, Neil Hamburger. Mm -hmm. I'm a big fan of uh, Neil Hamburger. Oh, good. Okay. Have you seen the movie? I haven't. I oh. didn't know that's what that was. Okay. So check but it I'm out. I'm going to now. Uh, John C. Riley is in the film. One and uh, And Michael Sarah. Nice. Yeah. So it's a, it's got quite a cast. It's, I'm going to watch that. It's tonight. a very unusual, very tough film. So be, be warned. I'm okay with that. Uh, but I'm very proud of it. It's, uh, it premiered at Sundance and when it came out and, uh, cool. and it got a little theatrical release. Who's uh, the director? Uh, that's a guy named Rick Alverson. Okay. And a uh, very interesting guy, a very, very unusual director, unusual film. Uh, let's see what else. Uh, I appeared as myself in a documentary that I believe is still on Netflix called Shut Up Little Man, oh, an audio yeah. misadventure. That's right? amazing. The, the neighbors yeah. who yelled at each other exactly. incessantly yes. were recorded. By right, the, right. That's pretty great. So you didn't know me that. at the time, but nope. I'm, I'm in the film because okay. I was involved in trying to do a, a film version of the, of the famous Shut Up Little Man tapes. Do you think that might ever come to be? Something oh, to, uh, no, because it's because been, it's it, it, the film tells the story of how all, everything spun in different directions and whatnot. No, yeah. I, it's not a film I'm going to make anymore. Besides, uh, when I wanted to make it, I wanted, uh, it to start 
Marlon Brando and Jack Nicholson. Holy so, shit. That'd uh, be awesome. And Brando's dead, so the project's dead. Can't do yeah, it. Right. All right. There, yeah. is, there is no second to, to Brando. <laughs> no. I no, thought that would no have been stand good. In. That is a good good cast. But um, uh, what any, else? Any others? What else? Um, oh, of course. Well, on uh, Amazon Prime, you can watch Author, the J.T. Leroy story, okay. which is a follow-up feature to The Devil and Daniel Johnston by Jeff Fjordzig. And we worked together on that uh, to tell the story of J.T. Leroy. Does that mean anything to you? I'm, if you tell me who he is, I think it will click. I, okay. The name definitely is familiar. J.T. Leroy is one of the most famous people who never existed. Okay. Uh, in the, around the year 2000, a book came out called Sarah mm-hmm. that became an international bestseller. And the author was allegedly this uh, young uh, man named J.T. Leroy. Uh, however... Uh, and then for 10 years, uh, this person who purported to be J.T. Leroy was a kind of international celebrity. However, uh, nosy reporters uh, eventually kind of began questioning, and, and uh, it was really uh, New York Magazine and then eventually the New York Times that blew the story open that uh, there was no J.T. Leroy, and they outed the real author of the film, of the, of the books, and uh, this movie, author, the J.T. Leroy story, is the story of what some people call the greatest literary hoax of our time. Nice. So, and you produced quite that? entertaining. Yeah, I was one of uh, one, of the, one of the producers. Yes. Excellent. Some of the films, I'm the only producer, and some takes more than one. Yep. That was a bigger film. Cool. Mm-hmm. So, right. you know, I could go on and on and on. I've made a lot of films over the years. Well. Hopefully people will mm-hmm. hear that and, and dig deeper. Go I'm, to IMDb, to, look me up, and yeah. uh, you'll be able to go through my whole filmography. Nice. Well, I'm going to do that. <laughs> All right. Um, anything else you want to talk about? Come to the show. It's going to be great. November I'm 14th. Excited. November 14th. Thursday. Victoria Theater. 7 p.m. 16th Street. Yes, 7 p.m. A lot of fun. Surprises. It's just going to... It's going to be a happening. Excellent. All right. All right. I'll put this up as soon as I can. So Thank people you. Can make it. All right. Thanks so much for coming, Henry. I really yeah, my appreciate pleasure. it. Thanks for listening, everybody. That's my new pal, Henry Rosenthal. Um, I hope you can check out this event. I'm going to be there. You can come see my hermit beard um, and the my multiple robotic arms. And uh, you can meet Henry. You can meet, um, I think the director will be there. He, I think. John Bastian. I don't know, actually, but... Um, I'm going to put it out there that he will be there. And, you know, a whole bunch of other people and some great performances and some fun fun is to be had. So I will see you there and or I will talk to you next week. I love you. Uh, goodbye. <laughs>